first weekend of November. Let's get it going. It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Good to have you here in the next 60 minutes. Action-packed. We're about to get into our week in review. Also on the way, financial and retirement planning for child-free couples. Ask Annex is packed full of great questions. And then toward the end of the show, remarriage and estate planning, why that's an important step you want to consider, you want to take, and you want to work with a professional on. I'm Danny Clayton, Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Danny. Dave Spano, our President and CEO. Welcome to you. Thank you, Danny. You know, folks, we've been talking about the Federal Reserve the entire year for obvious reasons, because we can see what's happening with inflation. I know I've beat that horse into the ground. However, it is important. It's front and center. There was a Fed meeting this week, and we'll get to that. But of course, Friday afternoon, the Dow ended up in the green, up 300 points, which uh, capped off an interesting week. It certainly was. I mean, we had a, a terrific month. I mean, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up the most in like 50 years last month, up over 14%. But this week, the S&P uh, was down 3.5%, the NASDAQ down 6 and small caps, which have started to outperform, were only down 2.8% in a period when the 10-year yield went to 4.15%. And if you open the hood and take a look, there's a lot of things that are happening. You said that the Dow Jones had certainly had a divergence from the other major indices. That's the S&P 500 and the triple Qs. And you have to look at what is owned in each one of those. Right. And, and it reminds me a lot. You know, you often say I'm a reform fund manager. I managed a, a tech fund in the year 2000. And I remember, you know, at a point, you know, everyone owned the technology companies to the exclusion of all other sectors. And what we're starting to see is something very similar. Some of the very largest companies in market cap in the S&P 500 are beginning to underperform in a very dramatic fashion. They're overowned, and many of them are still not cheap. Whereas at the same time, you know, smaller cap companies, uh, industrial companies, energy companies, uh, financials are actually building bases. And that's why, you know, the, the portfolio positioning going forward is going to be absolutely critical. And so we've talked about this, but I want you to do a quick primer course. There's a market cap weighted index that we look at, and you can see what's happening. First of all, I want you to explain that, but you can see what's happening when these large market caps start to correct. Well, the S&P 500 is market cap based. The, 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 the selection and the inclusion of companies in the S&P is decided by a committee. And what often happens is as companies succeed and they get bigger and bigger, they become a bigger and bigger part of that index. So Apple is obviously uh, the largest market cap company, roughly 6% of the S&P. You know, Microsoft's right up there. Google's up there. And basically the top eight in the S&P 500 are roughly 23% of the market in cap. In what sector are they in? And they're all basically in the technology sector. And they're also in a sector that really benefited in, in some ways for the pandemic because it, it forward-loaded trends that were going to take place over years. And, and it was just a two-year trend that, uh, that occurred. So we saw a lot of excesses, probably a lot of pull-forward demand. So when you think about it, the valuation on those names is about 24 times earnings, whereas the balance is about 12.9. So the soldiers, if you will, in the S&P 500 are actually reasonably valued. Yeah, and so we've pointed that out, that those big tech names have an outlier effect on these indices. And let's now shift gears to the important meetings that happened this week. We had a lot of economic news. Most importantly, the Federal Reserve came out earlier this week. Right. Jerome Powell, uh, you know, they announced a 75 basis point hike, which was widely expected. And then in the press conference, you know, the market initially rallied off that because they feel like perhaps the pace of rate increases in the future is going to slow. But Powell basically said, we've got a long way to go. He re resumed that hawkish stance that he originally expressed at Jackson Hole and the market sold off because the belief now is that that terminal rate, in other words, the rate they're going to get to is a little higher than they had thought originally because inflation has been so persistent and uh, sticky. And so 75 basis points 
of course, is what it came out. And then what happens in December is where all eyes went. And 50 basis points is the common thinking. So just in a matter of approximately four or five or six weeks, you're going to see 125 basis points hike from where it was, which was in the low threes. And still, Derek, historically, they don't stop raising rates until they see the whites of the eyes of inflation. Right. Historically, they haven't stopped uh, raising the Fed funds rate until it was above the rate of the CPI. And the last measure we saw on CPI was eight. The Fed funds rate, as you mentioned, is close to four-ish now. So there's a wide dichotomy there. That can close, of course, any number of ways. But Most, the, most importantly, that inflation becomes down. Right. That would that would certainly help. The other thing that was a kind of a, a green shoot, however, was that he did acknowledge the lagged effect of monetary policy and the fact that there are leading indicators that are rolling over. So they are aware that the inflationary pressures are subsiding to a degree, uh, but he's certainly not prepared to pause, which is what the market, I think, is hoping for. And ladies and gentlemen, what is in your portfolio matters in times like these? You betcha. Head to our website, AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button. That is the thing you want to do, and you can do it this weekend. Also want to remind you, we can review available on demand this weekend at the Annex Wealth Management YouTube channel on Axiom, delivered Sunday mornings, Spotify at the top of the hour. AnnexWealth.com is our website. Click that Get Started button. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, Saturday, November 5th. We're going to be right back on 620 WTMJ. We're back, hot off the press, the 2022 year-end tax guide from Annex Wealth Management, now available at AnnexWealth.com. It's available to anybody. It is an amazing two-sided source of so much help. Uh, Just got to head to our website, AnnexWealth.com. Dave, this is something we put out every single year, but this year's is especially great. Well, it is, and there's a lot of stuff going on, folks. And we know, obviously, you can't, you have to be under a rock to know that inflation isn't out there in the Federal Reserve is part of the conversation. But what's coming up as well, and again, you'd have to be under a rock not to know that we have an election coming up. And all of those things, Danny, are going to have an effect on the way people look at their portfolios. In the studio, we got Derek Felsky, our chief investment officer. Dave Spano is our president and CEO, Annex Wealth Management on Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Thanks, Danny. And let me continue on that thought, Derek. You know, you, you talk about what's happening and the fact that there's an election coming up. And one of the top concerns, of course, is inflation. And when you break it down, you know, there's been an argument by some economists that we've seen peak inflation, but we got a jobs report this week, which was really interesting. Right. The job report actually was a lot stronger than many people had thought. The U.S. economy added 261,000 jobs uh, in October, uh, above the 205,000 estimate. Our average hourly earnings were actually up to 0.4%, a bit faster than the prior month. So wage growth continues apace. And the number of people in the labor force actually declined. So the unemployment rate actually went from 3.5% to 3.7% despite the strong number. And again, Derek, that is an important piece that it added jobs. And of course, when you talk about inflation, where I was going with that is wage inflation is a significant part of the calculation. Well, I think all of us know, you know, I know like at my country club, we've had a difficult time hiring people. And on the service side, you know, that's, that's been a challenge. So employers are reluctant to give up employees during a period of what they perceive to be economic weakness. So perhaps firings will be sticky in a sense. Uh, The other thing is, you know, these job openings were up again, surprisingly, by almost 800,000 in the last reading. So there are still a lot of job openings. And, you know, with a strong labor market and a Fed that is is convinced that one of the reasons why inflation is persistent is is demand, uh, they're doing everything they can to do, which is why these markets have been so volatile looking for direction as the headwinds between 
a tightening Fed and a slower economy continue to collide. And speaking of the tightening Fed, of course, that the Federal Reserve is the United States central bank, but there are central banks around the world that are very concerned about currencies. And of course, the Bank of England made news this week as well. Right. They raised the rate as well. And, and we know that the UK faces much more complicated inflation issues than we do here in the United States. Their electricity prices are off the charts. Commodity prices, the same thing. And their economy is probably already in a recession. And that's one of the things that's per- perplexing to many because the U.S. is still somewhat of an oasis. We're in a better position than many other countries around the world. And we have the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. And because it's been so strong, it has actually restrained impl- inflationary impulses in our country, which is why I think the U.S. stock market has performed so much better than overseas markets. And so, you know, we've talked about we are exporting inflation, which certainly the rest of the world doesn't want to see. But let's talk through that. Well, I mean, you know, currencies affect the prices people pay. They also affect earnings. For example, the Chinese, who we used to have a much better relationship with, you know, low cost labor and the rest, they were exporting disinflation for decades. And that is shifting. We're going on parallel paths, not mutually agreeable paths. So, you know, we're talking about separate semiconductor industries, restraints on trade and the rest. And that's going to lead to a higher level of inflation in our country than what we're used to, even after the Fed is done with this tightening cycle. And lastly, of course, is the U.S. dollar clearly is compared to other currencies, and the dollar is on everyone's eyes, especially when it comes to energy. Right. I mean, the, you know, energy is denominated in dollars. Now, we've got crude oil trading in the mid-90s. Now, where do you think the price of oil would go if the dollar were to weaken considerably? It would probably go a lot higher, and that would be to the consternation of many, but that would also lead to inflationary pressures here, which is why the Fed's task is so difficult. And, you know, when you look at backward-looking indicators, it's so easy to hit a tree, you know, if you're driving along without looking out the windshield. You've got to, like, you know, think about what they're doing, which is why a measured pace of rate increases makes a lot of sense to me, at least, particularly when they're reducing the size of their balance sheet. And I know folks are listening to this as they're driving down the road, but I know this is compelling, but please don't run into any trees. (laughs) We appreciate that. There's our public service announcement. Derek Felsky, our chief investment officer, got them for the rest of the hour, along with Dave Spano, our president and CEO. Folks, if we can help, head to our website. It's AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button. Fill out that contact form and we would love to talk. Not all families are the same. Couples without children still need solid financial planning. We'll talk about that next on 620 WTMJ. We can review, know the difference minutes, planning topics, including investments, retirement, tax, and estate. It's all on the Annex Wealth Management YouTube channel. Just search Annex Wealth Management. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management? Not one the same. Not one of our clients' financial and retirement plans are the same because not one of our clients are the same. It's deeply personal. It's custom-tailored. It's unique to you. We often talk about families in a traditional sense. Dad, mom, kids. We also know not every family is traditional, and it's very true for couples who are child-free. Planning for these couples is different, and that's what we're going to talk about with Deanne Phillips, Director of Client Learning and Development, a CFP, and a CDFA, Certified Divorce Financial Analyst. Welcome back. Hi. Child-free is a better, kinder way of saying childless, right? For whatever reason, and most or none of our business, not every couple has children. But that doesn't mean they don't appreciate holistic financial planning. Well, sure. I like to think of it this way, Danny. There are some people who have heirs where it's important 
to have them leave their beneficiaries something to provide for them. And you know what? It doesn't matter if it's their children, nieces, nephews, friends. And there are some people who've worked hard. And while they love the people around them in their life, their goal is to make sure that they themselves are provided for. But either way, holistic financial planning is required. And by the way, there's really no right or wrong in that. You know, it's tough to pin down exactly how many Americans don't have children and don't plan on having any. Going by census estimates, about 11% of Americans 55 and older are child-free, but recent data suggests the number may be growing. It's reasonable to assume 50 to 60 million Americans are child-free. Deanne, true or false, most, if not all, financial rules of thumb assume that you have kids. Yeah, that's true. So if we're creating a financial plan in a box, so to speak, and, and it's not customized, obviously that's not the way Annex works. But many goals that are around that traditional financial planning would include the legacy you leave after you die, not necessarily thinking about the legacy you create in your life. I think those are very different things, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. So I do believe it's true, Danny. If you take the possibility of kids out of the equation... Does the whole foundation of a financial plan change? Well, sure, it does. Because it's not so much about what you leave behind. It's about what you create in your life. You know, we all want to be relevant, right? We want to be remembered by someone or something. So this could be about what you're doing while you're still alive. Maybe creating that ongoing scholarship with your alma mater. Or maybe it's about doing what makes your soul sing and giving to charity in a way while you're alive where you can volunteer and you can really feel the goodness there. It's about something bigger than ourselves that we want to take care of. Child-free couples are not necessarily non-traditional, but are they still aiming at traditional financial landmarks like retiring at 65? Well, the age might change, but certainly for most people, retirement's the goal. However, we like to rephrase this and have people think about not retiring from something, but retiring to something. And, you know, throughout our retirement, our goals change as well. We don't know where we might live, for example. And in some cases with couples with kids, they might say, well, I, I want to be where my kids are. That gives a little freedom to people who don't have that concern. We're with Ian Phillips, Director of Client Learning Development, CFP and a CDFA, planning for child-free couples. What's it mean when somebody suggests to invest backwards? Ah, well, this would be true of anybody who, again, wants flexible early retirement in particular, with children or not. Now, if you're going to retire before the age when you can, without penalty, pull money from your retirement funds, then you need to consider the tax placement of your investments and make sure that you have different pots of money from a different taxation point of view and make sure that you can pull from a pot of money that won't penalize you. So for example, a lot of people might do the right behavior of paying themselves first and doing a pre-tax 401k, for example. That's great. But if you pull from an IRA before the age of 59 and a half, or in many cases, a 401k before 55, you might hit a penalty. Now, having a traditional taxable account or even a Roth that was set up earlier gives you a kind of tax freedom and flexibility to do tax-advantaged investing and to pull your funds penalty-free if you're going to retire earlier. So again, early planning. It's never too early, right, Danny? Planning for child-free couples. 
plan for long-term care. That would be huge. Yeah, I do hear from my singles and couples who are child-free periodically a concern about their own personal care as they age. And because of this, we do suggest that they consider an estate plan sooner. And in case of disability or long-term care that hits early, we like to explore the option of both of those types of insurances or hybrids. Uh, from an educational point of view, you know, people should know what the cost would be to them, but then you've got to follow the math because obviously the earlier you it, there's a certain break even if you're going to use it to make sure that the math works of paying the premiums as opposed to self-insuring. That's the kind of math that a financial planner can look at. You know, they also there's a concern about having that financial power of attorney and healthcare power of attorney that you can turn to if there's a problem. Having these can provide a peace of mind. Not one of our clients' financial and retirement plans are the same because not one of our clients are the same. Investment, retirement planning, tax planning, and estate planning, we do it as a fee-only fiduciary. Know the difference? Our website, AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Start a button. Deanne Phillips, Director of Client Learning Development, CFP, and a CDFA. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Bottom of the hour, time for news. And for that, we head to the WTMJ Breaking News Center. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management? Time for Ask Annex. Head to our website. you got a question. Look for the Ask tab. If we can help, hit that Get Started button. Sarah Kyle's a wealth manager joining us. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Danny. Randy Winkler, Siapina wealth manager. Welcome. Hi, Danny. It's Roth time. we got a couple of them. Our first one is from James, and then we have an anonymous question. Let's put them together because they're kind of sort of the same. James asks, what's the difference between a Roth conversion and a Roth contribution? And then our anonymous question asks, are Roth conversions something I can do myself? Well, Danny, this is one of the most common questions that we hear is, what's the difference? And unfortunately, the words are very similar, a contribution and a conversion. But we'll talk about what the difference is. Let's start with a contribution because I think it's a little bit of an easier concept. To make a Roth contribution, you have to have earned income and it has to be below a certain dollar amount. And there's a certain maximum that you can put in. But this money typically comes from like your checking account, from a non-qualified account. You're putting money away in the Roth and it's never taxed again. There's lower limits, but it's something we look at for people that are working and probably in lower tax brackets. A Roth conversion is when you take money out of a qualified bucket, like an IRA, a 401k, or a 403b. You pay the taxes and then move it over into the Roth to never pay taxes again. So prior to that, it's not a Roth. Correct. The yep. money would be in an IRA, yep. 401k, a, a different kind of account. So what we're doing is we're choosing to pay the taxes. One of the big differences, there's no limit to how much you can do for a Roth conversion, and there's also no income limits. So you could do a whole bunch. And some people, when they hear about them, they're like, well, hey, let's just do the whole IRA. We never do that because you might be blowing past the top tax bracket. So we're very selective in picking what bracket we want to convert into to fill that up. That probably answers the next question, which is, are Roth conversions something I can do myself? Because it sounds like a lot yeah. of moving pieces. I think technically you probably could, but you probably don't want to because there's some tripwires that you may come across. There's something called an IRMA threshold. If you have a certain amount of income, you start paying more in Medicare premiums. You might hit the NIT, the net investment income tax, where you have to pay additional capital gains taxes. So, And the numbers don't line up. They wouldn't make it that easy for us. So if you're just looking at the tax brackets, you might be missing some other opportunities. Social Security taxation could go up. So it'd probably be good to get some advice from somebody who's got great software tools and a, and a big tax background to do these types of things. Next up on Ask Annex, another anonymous question. I've always 
always paid extra on my mortgage toward principal. We refied when rates were super low. If savings rates continue to rise, I think I should stop that and move the extra cash somewhere else. 401k, HSA, I have both, or somewhere else. Well, as you know from the show, I'm a big fan of the HSA, so that triple tax advantage you just can't beat. You get it, put it in pre-tax, it grows tax-free, and then it comes out tax-free for medical expenses. But I'm not really sure about your financial picture, but if the bulk of your assets are already in the 401k or other retirement accounts, take the money you normally pay your mortgage and open up an individual brokerage account. That will serve you probably really nicely later on in life. It'll give you more spending flexibility because you want to even out that tax location where all your accounts are. You've heard us talk about the three buckets, the tax now, tax later, and tax never. So if you can start filling up that tax never bucket, and it comes time later on in life when you want to start spending that money, you won't be limited and worry about how much income you're taking. That third bucket sounds a whole lot more fun. Yeah, I love the third <laughs> yeah, bucket. The tax never. Next up on Ask Annex from Tony, how are portfolios de-risked? I assume that also impacts the potential upside. So one of the most popular ways to de-risk the portfolio is by changing the asset allocation. So more on the fixed income side or debt. So you sell your equities or your stocks and you reinvest it into the debt side of the portfolio or the fixed income. Thereby, you're changing your asset mix. And it will affect your returns because we know risk and reward go hand in hand. More risk you take, the more reward you're expecting. The less risk you take, the less returns. But keep in mind, in a taxable account, if you're rebalancing and doing that, just keep in mind the tax implications of doing that. Here's an anonymous question. My neighbor is well compensated but severely behind on investing for retirement. He believes he can make up ground by being super aggressive with stocks and other types of investments. This isn't the time, or is it? I'm really torn on answering this question because part of me wants to say, yeah, now probably is the time because the market's down. We have an opportunity to buy things on sale and move forward. Um, What I'll actually say is you should probably stick with your risk tolerance. So a lot of people change their risk tolerance when the market's up and the market's down. And most of the times they do it backwards. When the market's down, they sell out, they sell low. And when the market's back up, they get confident and they buy high. Been talking about here is flipping that around, which could be a strategy, but again, you have to get the timing right. So I would say get a financial plan, work with somebody to make sure you're in the right risk tolerance, stick with it, evaluate it, have active management to do this kind of thing for you, and then just kind of sit back and watch your wealth grow. That's Ask Annex. Got a question? Head to our website. It's AnnexWealth.com. If we can help, click that Get Started button. Sarah Kyle, Wealth Manager, thank you. You're welcome. Randy Winkler, CFP and a Wealth Manager, thank you. Sure. More to come. Please stick around. If you remarry, adjustments to your estate plan are important. Talk about that next on Money Talk. The Annex Wealth Management Show, 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management. Jill Martin is an estate planning attorney at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome back. Thank you. So we like to dot I's and cross T's here at Annex Wealth Management. When it comes to our clients, details matter. When it comes to estate planning, there are plenty of details to watch, including some gotchas that can come up with remarriages. To make things easier to keep track of, at least for me, we're going to use the Brady Bunch, kind of the classic American television story. There's Mike Brady, there's Carol Brady, Carol with three girls on her side, Mike Brady, and the boys on the other. You're familiar enough, right? Absolutely. Okay, good. If Mike Brady doesn't update his will after marrying Carol, remember they're they're putting the two families together for the bunch, and something happens to Mike, everything could go to the boys if that's the way it was structured. Basically, Carol would be out. Is that right? 
Well, it's not quite that simple. So what happens, though, is is anytime you have a remarriage, right, you need to revisit everything, whether it's beneficiary designations, whether it's your will, whether it's your trust, because divorce, what that does is it, it automatically takes out that spouse who is now an ex. That's within your estate planning documents that doesn't apply to beneficiaries. So they may be treated as predeceased. So yeah, maybe it would go to the boys then, and but maybe he wants it to go to Carol. So what happens is, is it's a totally changed dynamic of this remarriage. So you really want to make sure that you're looking at your estate plan, looking at all your beneficiaries to figure out what's going to happen and what do I need to change. Right, because what he wants to happen, if it's not legally set, won't happen. Absolutely. And so that's the key. We can't just assume that the remarriage fixed it or solved it. How about this slightly different scenario? Mike passes and it's all left to Carol with the understanding that she'd provide for the children, including the boys. There's a possibility that might not happen, right? There's a big possibility that if, might if not Carol happen. If Carol was evil. Well, not even if Carol was evil. It could happen by just accident, right? Let's, let's look at two IRAs. Mike has an IRA. Carol has an IRA. If Mike leaves his IRA to Carol and Carol's beneficiaries on her IRA were only her three girls, she hasn't done anything to not provide for the boys but what's happened is is her beneficiaries are her three girls and so that's where mike's ira and her ira go so we've disinherited the boys carol isn't evil in that she's done that but that's likely not what mike wanted to have happen so that's where more planning needs to come in okay before they moved into that super cool 70s split level house (laughs) right an estate planning attorney needed to be in place not necessarily but Anytime you've got children from prior marriages and you come to a new marriage with assets or something, right? Having some type of a marital agreement or a prenuptial agreement helps really outline how are we going to manage our new marital finances. And that's a really important step that some people don't undertake. But if you didn't do it before you got married, you can do it after. You can still contract with your spouse to say, these were my assets and I want them to go to the boys. And these were my assets and I want them to go to the girls. And here are our marital assets, which we'll split among the six of them. So there's things you can do after the fact, but sometimes it's easier to do it beforehand. In the case of the Brady Bunch, the kids were in middle school, high school-ish. And Mike and Carol's money was commingled. It was joint. Correct. Let, let, let's assume. Let, sure. Let's assume. Okay. So the kids grow up. They're in college, and then they moved out, and they're they're totally empty nesters. Is there any obligation from either of those parents to do, to pass anything on to the kids? No. No. I mean, you as a as an individual with money can give it to whoever you want to. Obviously, when they're spouses, it's a little different because spouses have certain statutory rights to get money from a from a spouse who's deceased. That doesn't pass on to children, right? If all of a sudden, you know, Danny, you have two kids and you decide that you're not going to leave them a dime once you and your wife are gone, they don't have any legal claim to say, I should have gotten something from dad. Children don't have an inherent right to inherit. So if dad wanted that, he should have stated that and set that up. Yes, okay. absolutely. Right. Estate planning and remarriages, what are the gotchas we're using? The Brady Bunch is our family example. Here's one that might hurt the most. I think he got at it a little bit at the beginning. Failure to protect your estate from your first spouse. Now, in the Brady Bunch example, Mike Brady was a widower. Carol was divorced. If things weren't absolutely clean with beneficiary designations, life insurance plans, if Carol passed, first husband has a claim. 
Well, not a claim. So what you have to do there is, is Carol needs to go back and look at her retirement account and figure out who the beneficiaries are. If her ex-husband was still listed, if she were to die, he's going to get that. That's where he would have a claim. Just because he's an ex-spouse doesn't mean he would have any authority. But if he's still listed as the beneficiary on her account, that's where he's going to get it. Now, he may decide, oh, I don't want it. Out of the goodness of my heart, I know it's going to go to my kids, my three daughters, right? Maybe he'd be okay with that, but maybe he wouldn't be. And then all of a sudden, what did we just do? I like that you have hope because that's what the 70s had with the Brady Bunch. (laughs) Joe Martin, estate planning attorney at Annex Wealth Management. Thanks for jumping on. You're welcome. Appreciate the trip down memory lane. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Going to be right back on 620 WTMJ. We're back. Quick reminder, this show is going to be on Spotify at the top of the hour. So if you came in partway through it and you'd like to hear a little bit more, make sure you do that. Also sign up for the Axiom on AnnexWealth.com, a free weekly newsletter. Subscribe to the Annex Wealth Management YouTube channel with over 1,500 videos. And if you really want to dig in deep with members of our Annex Wealth Management investment team, investigate our SWAT podcast. SWAT is S-W-O-T, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. We do it fresh every single Monday. It's a quick listen. You can find that on Spotify as well. Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer, Annex Wealth Management in the studio. So is Dave Spano, our President and CEO, Annex Wealth Management. You know, Danny, you know the Italians, uh, they are one big family, right? They're used to kidding me about who is Tina? <laughs> That's right. 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 Yep, so yep. Tina is, there is no alternative, folks. And the reason why that acronym had been used for so long is because interest rates were artificially kept low. When interest rates are low, that is good for risk assets. Well, the rules have changed, and now interest rates are up significantly, Derek. And we saw a two-year on Friday that made your eyebrows go up. Yeah, the two-year note at one point on Friday traded as high as 4.75%. And when you compare that to the the dividend yield on the S&P 500, that looks very attractive. And you don't get the kind of volatility that we've seen recently in the stock market. I mean, one of our most bullish fulcrums really throughout uh, most of the last decade was that stocks are offering a higher yield with capital appreciation potential. Now they're not offering a higher yield. Yes, they do have capital appreciation potential. But in the case of the S&P 500, there are some very expensive stocks that carry a big weight. And I'm going to pound the drum now, folks, and and remember that you heard it here. We have been saying, we've been talking about transitory inflation. We talked about it the entire year that said that term is crazy. Well, that, that has now been pushed away. And we talked about it, some other issues that we see coming. This is what I see coming, folks. The fact that the interest rate on the U.S. debt, 42% of that U.S. debt, comes due in the next three years. Think about that. So over the next three years, all of these bonds are going to come due and the Treasury is going to have to go out and pay current rates. Well, that debt on average was at 1.5%. Today, it's significantly over 4%. Eric, it's an issue. Well, and and just to put it in context, the interest on the debt is now the same size as the annual U.S. military budget, which is by far uh, the largest item in the U.S. discretionary budget. Now, if interest rates continue to go higher and they continue to fund on the short end of the yield curve, that could crowd out spending for other things, you know, social programs and the rest. So it's really a very important point in time that we're at. And there is an election, as you mentioned, on Tuesday. And right now it looks like we're going to have divided government, which historically has led to better returns returns for stocks over the long haul, but it's not necessarily a guarantee. And you talked about the discretionary spending. 60% of the budget, however, is tied to social services that is 
indexed to inflation. I'm talking about Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and the like. And so those, of course, that burden is going to go up. We saw the Social Security benefits went up significantly. And while those people who are getting Social Security are very happy about it, there's a cost to it as well. Right. An 8.7% increase is what I believe the cost of living adjustment was, which is the largest they've ever seen. So uh, there are lots of things going on in Washington that we know about. There are lots of things that are going to come about in the in the coming months. We could have a, you know, some sort of uh, debt ceiling crisis again as, as the Republicans perhaps try to spur some sort of fiscal discipline there. And it's going to be a challenging, volatile market. But we do know that historically, in the 12 months after the midterms elections, on in every case since 1950, the stock market has been higher. So again, you want to maintain discipline, don't get freaked out by headlines, and, uh, and approach things from a balanced perspective. Thanks, Derek. Great show today. And folks, you know, we talk a lot about know the difference, and we've been hitting that for a long time. And the reason being is there is a significant difference between financial advisors. I know if you listen to a show and you hear a lot of financial advisors on the show, we want you to know the difference between those who are true fiduciaries, not who just use it as a marketing slogan, but do it as part of their process, that are fee-only fiduciaries. That term, folks, has teeth. It doesn't mean that someone's going to say they're a fiduciary and then turn around and sell you a product, be it a variable annuity, a fixed annuity, some product that they've created. So go through the process and know what fee-only fiduciary means, and that is the the know-the-difference checklist that we've created, Danny. Dave, a lot of times, you know, we're radio fans. I mean, we've been on the radio for a long, long time. You go up and down the dial. You longer than I. (laughs) Thanks. You go up and down the dial on a weekend, you hear all sorts of financial talk shows, and really you might say, well, what's the difference? That's why we say know the difference. And that know the difference checklist is key. We have it sitting on the website, AnnexWealth.com. It's free for the asking. You can look it up. Make sure that you vet whoever you're going to work with and put us to the test. See how we're going to work with you. And we're going to give you two deliverables if you go through that process. You hit the get started button. The two deliverables is a framework for a financial plan. So important. That's the map. And of course, a second eye on your portfolio. Dirk Felsky, Chief Investment Officer, thanks for jumping on. Oh, my pleasure. Dave Spano, our President and CEO, thank you. Thanks, Danny. This show is on the air so you can hear a small sample of what we do and how we do it. If it sounds like a match, let's take it a step further. Head to AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button. Now is the time. Annex Wealth Management is ready. We hope you are. See you back here next Saturday, 10 o'clock. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, 620 WTMJ.